Hi, this is Russell. Welcome to A Life in Music, the podcast dedicated to performers who want to be their very best. I've spent my life working in an industry I love, professionally since the age of eight years old. I love what I do, and I'm still as passionate today as I have ever been. This industry is full of ups and downs, but it's still a wonderful industry, and A Life in Music is here to support performers with interviews from creatives to artists, behind-the-scenes insights, tips and tricks, and as much support as I can give to help you become the very best you can be. Now I've something to ask you. There are three ways in which you can help me reach more people. This not only benefits others, but also gives me the opportunity of getting great content to you. The more listeners I have, the more weight this platform has, and this in turn gives me my opportunities of getting even more great interviews and great content to you. Now, firstly, please go to my website at www.alifeinmusic.com and sign up to the newsletter. This means you'll be the first to hear about new content on the site and new podcasts as they become available. There's also some exclusive benefits that come from time to time. Secondly, please review the podcast. This is incredibly important to me. It takes a couple of minutes and if you go onto the website you'll find some very simple instructions. Please leave me a great review. This is the best opportunity for me to get further exposure from iTunes. And thirdly, just spread the word. Tell people about the podcast and the website and get them to have a listen. And finally, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your support. We have listeners from all over the world. This podcast is for you and I do it for no monetary benefit whatsoever. This is my way of sharing my experiences and wisdom from a life in music. And now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Life in Music with Russell Scott. On today's show, I'm interviewing writer, broadcaster, podcaster and musical theatre obsessive Edward Seckerson. Edward wrote and presented the long-running BBC Radio 3 series Stage and Screen and in which he interviewed many of the most prominent writers and stars of musical theatre. He also regularly produces podcasts of interviews and notable musical and theatrical artists and makes regular appearances on the BBC Radio 2 arts show, BBC Radio 3 and Radio 4. And of course, he's a very prolific theatre critic. I was thrilled to be invited over to his apartment and here is my interview with the legendary Edward Seckerson. Good afternoon, Edward. Good afternoon, Russell. Well, here we are, sitting in this uh, rather lovely room on a very bright, uh, sunny February day, the hottest day of the year so far. I think it's going to almost get to 20 degrees today, which is unheard of. Um, And we're sitting here, and we're going to talk today about about your life, really, as a journalist and a presenter and an actor, and um, to hear some insights into into your world. So tell tell me how it all started. Where did it all begin? Um, it started with chronic shyness, basically, Russell. Um, I was, I was a, an appallingly shy child, an only child, and uh, my parents were so frustrated. Um, they, they tried just about everything to, to bring me out, as it were, and I, I, I wouldn't put my hand up at school. I wouldn't, you know, I was really very sheltered. And um, a bit of a sickly child as well. And uh, uh, they had this inspired idea, which kind of backfired eventually, to send me at the age of five or six for what was called then elocution lessons, because they thought if I spoke well, this is how the social structure of society has changed so much, that if I spoke well, that it would, it would enable me to get on better and it would give me a, a head start in, in life. And, of course, what happened was I went to this lovely lady down the road who... Um, got me fascinated with words, with with poetry and plays, and um, and I became much more curious then about the theatre. I had grandparents that, that took me to the theatre a lot. I saw a lot of the pre-West End 
runs of musicals at Wimbledon and Streatham Hill Theatre, which was then going strong, now a bingo hall, sadly. <laughs> um, and uh, so that was the start. And of course, uh, I came to do some grade exams. And at grade five, I was spotted by an examiner who was a very eccentric lady who eventually became my teacher. Um, and she sent me, she, she gave me a very high mark and sent me for an audition um, to the BBC. And she said, I, I think you should be doing radio work. And my parents were a little bit cautious about it because they, in those days you wanted to grow up and have a proper job. What, were your, what did your parents do? Um, well, my mother worked in the health service. Um, uh, then she was, I think, just a medical secretary. But um, my father was a bit wasted because he was a very creative soul. But he was in the Air Force and then he went in into aero engines and had a, a very mundane job for someone as talented as he was. And he died very young, which was, which was very sad. It was a very different world. Um, but um, so I, I started going for auditions via this woman. I was set up with an agent and I was only 10, probably 10 or 11. And the first break I had was, was uh, in the archers. Um, where they were casting a new character, the adopted son of Tom Forrest, and I went up for it and got it. Um, and I was terribly green and very, very nervous about doing it. And I started doing lots of radio, a lot of schools radio. Um, and in a way, it worked wonders on my fears because I, I was passionate about the theatre and wanted eventually to, to be an actor, but at the same time, I was terribly nervous. How did you get the confidence? I mean, you, you, you were so was, shy. It was, having, it was a case of having to overcome it. Did you want to? Um, desperately, inside, clearly. But um, on the surface of it, I was always terrified of that first day when you go into a studio and you're surrounded by strangers. And most actors are very sweet and they, they make you feel at home. There's a great camaraderie about the business. I, and that's why I've always loved actors. But um, uh, I was still terribly nervous. And it, 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 it um, uh, gradually, um, the confidence came from knowing that I could do something perhaps that other people couldn't. And at school, I was encouraged because, uh, you know, I sp spoke well. I mean, fortunately, the teachers I had didn't develop an affected accent at all. It was, I, was, I was, wasn't aware that I was doing anything to my speech. I was just interested in words. And uh, that was the start of it. So as a child, although I went to ordinary schools, um, my parents were determined about that. There I was going off to do radio stuff and auditioning for stuff. And I auditioned for the second cast, Oliver, um, in, in the West End and didn't get it. But, uh, which probably just as well, because I don't think my parents would have allowed me to. <laughs> and I would have been desperate to be in it. I was obsessed with, with Oliver and Lionel Bart at that time of my life. So what about singing? So obviously you were, you were singing as well? Well, not, not we're... really. Uh, um, I could hold a tune. Okay. Um, and I've always been a little bit cautious about singing. I've never called myself a singing actor, ever. Um, because I never thought that I was was good enough and that was really important to me that, 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 that I had a certain quality and I regret now that I didn't really take it more seriously and go and have some singing lessons just to be able to do the basic kind of musical stuff that people can do not which a lot of actors do because of actors, they actors they'll, you know you get singers who are actors and you get actors who are singing and, and yeah. yeah I mean I, I, I sing a, a two or three phases in a show at the moment that I'm doing called Bernstein Reveal, which we'll come to probably, but with, with Jason Carr. Jason Carr and I do a brief snatch of mass, um, and it's deliberately there to shock the audience, I think, <laughs> because nobody would ever expect me to sing. Um, but no, I didn't at the time. I was, I was mainly concerned with, with uh, child acting work, and I, it was mainly radio, although... Of course, the bug was, was then with me. And um, when I left school, I went into um, uh, initially the BBC. I worked in the gramophone library for um, a short while, um, two, three years, and then went to Decca Records in the classical department because um, that was clearly my area, classical music. I played, I uh, had piano lessons. I played percussion. 
uh, I learned the violin briefly, so my background was very much um, in music and theatre. Did you study classical music? Um, only privately. Um, and again, bless my parents, you know, I'm, I may not have made much headway in my piano studies, but as a pianist, um, as, a, as, a, as a young man wanting to learn how to get around the instrument, it was invaluable. And the same with school, you see, at school we had peripatetic music teachers coming mm. in. Mm. I mean, those were the days. I mean, it's Do you still play an Comprehensive school. I don't anymore um, because I, I did play with a lot of very good orchestras as a percussionist. Um, but it demands a certain amount of time, of your time, and you have to commit to going to rehearsals every week. And I can't do that because I'm, I'm out and about seeing things, um, performing, whatever. Um, and of course, um, when I, uh, while I was at Decca Records and, and the, the bug never left me, I wanted, I thought, I really want to act professionally. I had been acting professionally, but as a child, it's mm. quite different. What's extraordinary is, is that <clears throat> you've, you've gone from being the shyest person on the planet, scared to put their hand up in class, to suddenly being in the arches, uh, becoming a percussionist, playing with orchestras, and being an actor. Mm. I think that's extraordinary and, and amazing. Well, it, 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 I'm still shy. <laughs> I find um, that hard to see, believe. <laughs> but I've, I've learned, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sociable, I've, I've learned how to communicate with people over a period of time, because I had to. And I think that's the key, Russell. It's, it's um, had I not been thrown in at the deep end, had my parents just said, oh, he'll leave him be, um, I think it would have been a much slower process. Um, and because I had a talent that showed itself quite early, uh, at least at school I felt that um, there was something that I could shine in. Uh, which helped me to come out. I remember being chosen to read the Christmas lesson at the annual Inner London Authorities carol service at the Festival Hall. And I, I, to this day, I don't know how I did it. I was 15 years old. Um, there were 3,000 people in the audience and I had to read this lesson. And um, I, I think it was the big turning point. I suddenly realised that I could do this even though I was paralysed with fear. Do you, um, do, you see a, do you see yourself, can you still imagine that person? Can you still remember exactly what it felt like getting on that stage and the nerves that you must have um, experienced? I sort of can. And I, I think I remember most of all that I just thought, well, I know this thing. I've got the, the words here. There's a microphone and um, I'm just going to do it very clearly. My parents are in the box with the headmaster. I mean, no pressure. No, um, doesn't matter I, about the three and a half thousand people there. I mean, it it it's it's all about. I think a lot of actors are shy people. Mm. Uh, they can lose themselves in characters, and uh, they we all have a way of dealing with with the fear. Um, it was interesting then that um, uh, having gone into the music business. Uh, I could not get rid of that urge to, to perform. And uh, um, I, while I was at Decker, I, I spent most of my days calling people at the BBC, sort of rejoining equity, calling people at the BBC to see if I could get back into doing some radio work. I did amateur dr dramatics as well. I went, was a member of a couple of groups uh, while I was started work. And of course, it... It took off again. I, I started to get offered radio again. And then I decided to leave Decca. I went to the Edinburgh Festival to do a play, Strindberg's Dream Play. I got offered, I auditioned for the Bristol Old Vic, got offered a season there, went into that season for the autumn. That was the start of an eight-year acting career, which a lot of which was out of work. But nonetheless, I dipped my toe into every field. So I did quite a bit of rep. Uh, I did still more radio, a um, couple of movies, very small parts in Dickie Attenborough movies, really, Bridge Too Far, Young Winston. Wow. Um, yeah, very, uh, you know, I was one of hundreds of young actors, but we were called Attenborough's private army, and I spent three months in Holland on that film. Um, and, uh, and all the while... 
I'm thinking, well, what I've got to have plan B. Um, because, uh, yes, I've had some nice jobs, but uh, I wonder where I'm going as an actor. Uh, I, I fell between stools. I, I was... Um, I could have been a young leading man, but I was more a character actor. And, and uh, if you see the photographs from way back when, um, there was an element of character in me. And so when I went into audition, I was not a natural young, young leading man. Um, there was something quirky about me even then. Um, and so I, I actually decided to, um, uh, to start to write. I thought, you know, I've got this huge passion for music and a vast record collection and I was fascinated by interpretation and uh, I had like 25 recordings of the Rite of Spring. <laughs> I mean that kind of obsession um, because they were all different and I started to write, um, I, I got spotted by a couple of new magazines, Classical Music Weekly, um, Hi-Fi and Record Review um, and although I was very green and raw People, I sent copy to people and they spotted a spark, clearly, and started to commission me as a freelancer. Um, eventually I got invited to be on Gramophone magazine, which was the industry bible then, yeah. and I'm still writing for it. And uh, um, so my journalistic career was born. Uh, and once I started writing for newspapers, people suddenly thought, well, hey, you know, you've got this theatre background. Um, you should be reviewing opera because opera was changing and it was becoming more theatrical. It was becoming less about the singers and more about the theatre. So I started doing just that. And the independent, I was their, uh, eventually their chief classical music critic, but I started as their, their chief opera critic um, under a wonderful guy called Thomas Sutcliffe, who still writes, who... Um, was the arts editor back then, and he um, he commissioned features that would be unheard of now. And this is the start of this idea I have of how journalism has has deteriorated and changed for the worse, very sadly. Uh, if I tell you that Thomas Sutcliffe, way back in the eighties, um, well, beginning of the nineties, um, rang me up one day and said. Um, Edward, we're going to do a, a series, I've decided to do a series called Vocal Heroes. And I want you to write a really technical as hell piece about anyone you want, any singer at all. And I don't want you to make any concessions. Can you imagine this happening now? I want you to make no concessions to the readers except to give them a damn good read. Um, but I want lots of technical detail. So it was controversy. Uh, well, not just, no. He just wanted he wanted it to be meaty. Yeah. And and um, you know nowadays um, a a piece like that would never be commissioned because it's not um, it's not glossy enough right. initially. It's 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 where's the where's the angle? People would say. So I chose Barbara Streisand, and I wrote a piece I'm still very proud of. It's stuck in the basement somewhere. Um, where I talked in great detail about certain songs and tracks and, I mean, musical, technical detail about her voice, about... Because I'd actually heard her live in Funny Girl. I saw her in Funny Girl when I was a boy and um, was surprised by how small the voice was. <laughs> See, these are things that you kind of... Um, you'd never dream yeah. now. Um, but, um, so... That was the start of what was a golden age for me of journalism. I mean, where you'd ring up the editor and say, I've heard this amazing conductor, or I've seen this amazing musical theatre performer, and I want to write about them. And they would say, yeah, OK, there's a slot next week, 1,700 words, uh, give it to me by Wednesday. Now it would just be, well, never heard of them. Who are they? What's the angle? Um, uh, what's the hook? And of course... The Independent really was independent in those days. It wanted to do stuff other people weren't doing. Um, but gradually, as it, it you know, got into its second decade, um, it fell into that terrible trap of just wanting to do what every other newspaper was doing. So whoever was sexy at that moment, whether it be an actor, a musician, singer, whatever, um, 
they'd go with them instead of going listening to the the, the people are on the uh, on the cutting edge the the journalists themselves who go to things and hear things i think this is where it comes in to play about doing things for a, you know for effect mm. because i think a lot of the media and especially as social media has come in a lot of things are done for effect. They're there to gain readers, they gain mm. listeners, mm. Uh, to gain followers. Absolutely. They're not actually done for for the right reasons and and for what's real. It's done for an effect. Yeah. And this is this is you know evident in TV and radio. It's all you know whatever you pick up a, a tabloid. It doesn't matter whether it's a tabloid or one of the the, the lead sheets. It, yes. It's it's the same. You get they're trying to get effect. How do you think? How do you think things have changed? Because 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 things have changed a huge amount. Oh, they have, and you see, the more things change, the more the audience attitude changes as well. You see, this is the damaging part of it. So, if people's, um, if you give people sound bites, then that's what they come to expect. So they have no concentration. They have no powers of concentration. They don't want to read a five hundred word review. They want to read a. A two hundred word review or less. How have you? How have, you, actually, remained, how have I, you remained objective? That's what I was going to. I'm yeah. Going well, I, I mean, it, it. It. I mean, I think that, um, if I could just finish yeah, that yeah, please, thought, please. the beginning of the end really was the star system. Mm. Um, and I remember on the indie saying, well, you know, why are we introducing a star system? I mean, Thomas Sutcliffe certainly wouldn't have done, um, but his successor. Because everybody else was doing it, and he said, "Well, it's 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 good." I said, "No, it's it's rubbish." Um, you go to the, the opera, um, you see a sensational production um, that's musically terrible. How do you re- how do you award stars to that without being totally misleading? And it's the same because things aren't black and white; they're shades of grey. Um, I remember one one editor once said to me, "Oh, did you like it or not?" <laughs> And he was a twat, he really was. But I mean... Is that one star or five? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I said, um, I said, well, have you read it? Have you read the review? It's, it's, it's an argument, it's a debate. It's not about this is the best thing I've ever seen or the worst thing I've ever seen, which is what star systems encourage. And I think you've hit something right on the head there because I think, I think when you used to read a critique of something, I can remember particularly when I was going to buy, in the old days when I used to buy CDs, when they first came out, this is talking a very long time ago, and used to re- read the Penguin book, mm. which had the, the yeah. he, it became yes. a thick Bible yes. of the best and worst CDs out yes, there. Absolutely. And you used to read them and you used to read a critique it was the good and bad of everything. There was no judgment made as here's a one star, a five star. They did they did rate them, but they didn't rate them in that way. No. They discussed them, and then they decided on a star on a star system that that uh, graded it by different by different kind of attributes. So you had to read exactly. the debate, exactly. the copy, um, which is the whole point of good criticism, um, and. Uh, one of the things I've always applauded Gramophone magazine for, although it slightly veered off the rails at one point when it was published by Haymarket Publishing, um, but it's gone back now to its glory days where you get a record, no one's going to tell you, um, well, they'll give you a wordage, but you don't have to stick to that wordage. And if it's worth debating and worth talking about, I mean, you might get record of the month which is seven or eight hundred word review of something and you can be detailed and you see I I mourn the passing of this because when I was a teenager and a a record collector um, I couldn't afford to buy these things but I would read the reviews and I could hear the disc I could hear the performance while I was reading the review because they were so well written and argued and I would think, well, shall I buy that version or that version? I'd reread these reviews um, because the quality of the work was, was so outstanding. And, of course, if, if, you, if you then have an arts editor who is actually not interested in maintaining that kind of substance and quality, um, of course the face of journalism is going to change and journalism is going to diminish and print journalism is going to become less important. Um, And I know for a fact, not just through my experiences of The Independent, but also other newspapers and colleagues who I've known for years, I know what they're going through now. Um, 
and it's not good. And many of them will not be replaced when they leave because that's the end of it. Mm. Um, why should we have a classical music review reviewer? Um, I mean, this is an appalling state of affairs, but I sometimes think, you know, I would, maybe I should have been a film reviewer because then, <laughs> you know, you've got a job for life, basically, because it's sexy. Everybody wants a film reviewer and they'll pay good money for one. Do you think you've, ha you've had to change the way you write because of it? Um, I, I refuse to, really. And um, I... I mean, I had, I had to toe the line, obviously, when I was writing for The Independent, because there were wordage uh, ceilings, um, and you, you would do the best job you, you could within that wordage. Um, but, I, no, I, I, I generally refuse to get sucked into that change of, of tone. Um, and that's why I now review far less, but when I do... When I review for Gramophone, I, I actually enjoy it again. Um, I'm, it's, it's a feeling I haven't had for 20 years. And how have you gone from... You, you've gone from... Obviously, you went from acting into writing, into journalism. Um, you're clearly as passionate as you probably ever were about it, even mm. more so, probably. I can hear that just the way you're talking. But you've gone from classical and opera, and you're, you do a lot of musical theatre as well. How does that crossover work for you? Because I know as a performer... I always had the crossover of singing from, I, I sang professionally, classically, as well as musical theatre. And that's sometimes very difficult for people to, to understand how oh, you, you cross over. Sure. So, how, so it's the same thing with the writing. How do you cross yeah. over and be an expert in both? Well, people want to pigeonhole you. Um, they always do. And, they, and particularly now, uh, in the age we're living in, you, you, you become, uh, it's very easy to become a specialist in one thing and ignored in everything else. Um, uh, I think the reason is that I've always applied the same standards to the different genres. So, um, you know, when I talked about my grandparents taking me to musicals, that's where my passion for musical theatre began. Um, it was always to me, and my ultimate hero in music is Leonard Bernstein, because um, for him, he loved genre crossing. There was no such thing as... You know, it was all either good music or bad music, and uh, he loved it all and embraced it all. I think that's where it really changed. It was Bernstein that changed oh, that. West I mean, Side Story was it. Massively influential yeah. man in every sense, and we should have had at least 10, 15 years more of him yeah. if he hadn't smoked himself to death. Um, but, um, and, and indeed, the show I've, um, I've put together called Bernstein Reveal with Jason Carr and Sophie Louise Dan... Um, is uh, it's actually based on I was one of the last people to interview him uh, when I say one of the last I did a big cover feature for Gramophone uh, exactly a year before he died and um, it was an extraordinary experience and I'm, I, I won't go into it now because uh, nobody will go and see the show um, but it was an extraordinary encounter to meet finally your great hero who I'd actually at one point wrote a fan letter to um, when uh, the recording of Mass came out. Um, and um, his manager, <laughs> Harry Kraut, um, uh, found out my phone number. I was living at home at the time, rang my mother. <laughs> um, but that's a story that, again, I'm not going to give away again. But um, well, tell, me, uh, tell me what it was like meeting him. Just tell me that little bit. Um, well, uh, the, the key was... And I'd been tipped off long before I met him uh, by a couple of other conductors, actually, Michael Tilson Thomas and Leonard Slatkin, both of whom were kind of protégés. And they said to me, you know, if, if you ever meet Lenny, talk about his music. Don't talk about his conducting, talk about his music. And I made, my, made up my mind, because I knew his music, I, not just West Side Story and, and the musicals, but I knew his concert works too and loved his, his music. Um, and that's what I did. And, of course, the, the, the magic descended when he realised that's what... Well, I told him, that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're here to talk about for the next hour, I said, because that's all I had. And I think, in a way, that his classical music is, is a sideline almost... 
because mm. I can remember. I mean, I, uh, West Side Story is my my favourite. I mean, it's, it's my favourite all time musical mm. theatre piece. Mm. But but he's he's written so much great classical music that mm. I think is very much, as I said, pushed to the side. Because you say Bernstein, you think yes, on the town, course. you think you know, you think West Side Story. And his Chichester Psalms, I can remember singing it, is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, no one was more aware of that than him. Yeah. And the most startling thing to to come out of that that encounter was how here was this living legend and he was humble that I wanted to talk about his, his works because no one else did. All his peers thought he was Tim Pan Alley. Um, I mean, had he lived 10, 12 years young, uh, more, uh, he would have seen some of those concert works becoming more core repertoire. Uh, and things like the serenade for violin, strings and percussion, um, which is now in every major violinist repertoire which wasn't at the time at all. And that's what was so moving about it. And yes, you're right, uh, it was pushed to the side. Um, and it hurt him deeply um, because it made him think, well, is it any good, this music? And of course, now we know it, it is. So I'm going to move away from Bernstein yes. for a minute because I know you're not going to talk much more about him. <laughs> but you've you've interviewed some amazing people yourself. I mean, you've gone from journalism into, into presenting and to interview, interviewing. And I've seen, you know, seen the list, the, the roster of the most incredible names. Tell me about some of those. I mean, there, there are some incredible... I'm not going to even list them. I'm going to let you talk about the ones that really meant something to you. Um, well, uh, obviously, in the classical world, they were... Um, uh, uh, when you write for Gramophone magazine um, and your the features come along... Uh, so I met several legendary names... Um, both conductors, singers, instrumentalists uh, over the years. Mrs. Ostropovich several times. Um, uh, extraordinary, terrible English. I mean, all the years he spent working with, with Western musicians spoke the worst English imaginable, but he was just a force of, of nature. Um, uh, Bernstein was quite late on the list, but um, so many legendary conductors, from Antol Dorati to Raphael Kubelik to um, Klaus Tenstedt to, I mean, just you name them. Um, there, there are not many exceptions. Didn't meet Klemperer, was too late for Toscanini. Um, <laughs> uh, I was, you know, but the, the, subsequently, yeah, um, and Beecham and people like that, I never met because I was I wasn't around then. But um, and and people like Simon Rattle, who um, I, I interviewed at the very beginning of his career, as well as the beginning of my career, and I still have the letter of the piece I wrote about him that he wrote me from. He put on the top somewhere somewhere cold in Scotland, <laughs> and he wrote me this very sweet letter, and that was the beginning of association. Um, but then, s subsequently, as I as, uh, the big turning point for my love of musical theatre happened, I, I did a lot of radio work, obviously as a as a as a journalist, um, and as a presenter. So I presented the Breakfast Show on Radio Three um, for three years. Um, and uh, I did lots of other radio like that as well on Radio 3. But then the big turning point came when Roger Wright decided to have a musical theatre show, a film and musical theatre show called Stage and Screen. And um, I did it for um, six years. Uh, and during that time, of course, the, 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 the letters BBC opened many doors. And we'd go to New York twice a year to, to do interview programmes, because not all the programmes were interview programmes. Some of them were um, a, a programme devoted to Irving Berlin, perhaps, a pro programme devoted to political musical satire. So there were sometimes themes attached. But the interview programmes were key. And um, uh, again, there, was, there were very few people I didn't meet. And what I learned from all this, um, I mean, it's very different being in a room with your little um, recording device um, and talking casually when it's not for broadcast. Um, and the cassette tape I still have of the Bernstein interview um, is not for publication. I mean, there's no way I'd ever let that out of my grasp. People have asked me for it. <laughs> 
Um, and it, it's not good enough quality, probably. But anyway, it's too precious because it's it's a it's a private thing doing an interview. But then the other side of the coin is is doing a public interview, which might be on stage, it might be uh, on television, it might be on radio. Um, then it's very different. The whole dynamic is different. And um, uh, of those experiences, it's always fascinating to see how the artist um, handles it. And the best example I can think of is Julie Andrews, who I interviewed probably three times. Um, yeah, at least three times, maybe four. Um, and uh, the first time was when I wrote the liner notes for her Richard Rogers album, which was quite late in her singing career. And I was brought in by Polygram to write, write the liner notes, but also to do a, a video, a whole video package about the album. Um, it's the, the most money I've ever earned from a journalistic job. Um, and I, in fact, you know those occasions where someone tells you what they're going to pay you and you, you sort of, you don't want to say, sorry, could you say that again? Um, because you think they might change their mind. <laughs> um, but I, I, and that, that encounter with Julie Andrews was extraordinary because she, you could not wish to meet a more professional, a more generous and giving person. At the same time, she knows what the business is all about and there is a poise which has been manufactured over many years, I think. Were you nervous? Because, um, because yes. Again, because of, of, of the shyness from years ago. Oh, gosh, of course. Because it's, it's almost like performing. It's like going on stage. I mean, you're yeah. doing, you know, you've, you've had a, a hit, hit series, if you like, of, of, um, of talks and interviews uh, with various stage and screen people at the Charing Cross Theatre yeah, over yeah. the years. Yeah. Um, it's, so interviewing is just like getting up on stage and delivering your finest aria. You know, it it's really is. How the, nervous the, the were bit, you? Well, I, I, was, I was nervous. Fortunately, the first time I met her um, was when she recorded The King and I, uh, a role she'd never played on stage, which is extraordinary, because she's so it could have been written for her. Um, but she recorded the album with Ben Kingsley, mm. uh, and... Um, she came to London to do some press and uh, they pushed the boat out. And I was at the end of day one, and the, uh, writing feature for The Independent, I was at the end of day one after about 30 interviews. And I walked into the room and yes, I was nervous, but I knew that I, I'd done all my homework and she was very gracious. But when I sat down and started talking about her early years and all the things she did as a child and those these these operatic arias she produced as a child, um, I could see she was thinking, "Ah, oh, this is interesting. We've got we've got a proper a proper journalist here because she'd spent the day talking about the sound of music, of course, clearly." Um, and we talked a great length, and she was lovely. And I wrote the piece. And um, at the end of the interview, she said to the PR guy, um, oh, can you arrange one like that at the end of every day, she said, and that, which was very generous and sweet of her. And I thought no more about it. Never, never waste an opportunity. Um, uh, when the Richard Rogers album was due to be recorded, I got a call from Polygram. Um, when it was put to her, she said, what about that? that young man who wrote the piece for The Independent. That's how I got the other job. Um, it always pays off to do your, your homework. And, and, to, and to be your best on form. Uh, you have to be. You have to be. You're only as good as your last job. Yeah. Um, and so the, 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 the most pressured time I've ever had was when, uh, with her, was when... Um, uh, we were doing a special for Radio 3 for Stage and Screen, which was going out of Christmas, and it was going to be 90 minutes. And my producer said, <clears throat> look, we've, we've been offered this slot because she was over doing some promotion for Crystal Champagne and launching a boat somewhere at Southampton. And there was a, a possibility of her coming to the Dorchester and doing one or two interviews. And he got in there, Magic BBC again, and we got her. And I said to him, Bill, um, the tape's got to be rolling 
before she comes into the room because I want to start talking to her. I don't want to sit down and then say, now, yeah, you know, let's start kind you, of thing. You mean like we did today. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's actually very tough to start in, an interview with anybody. Um, and so I said, if the tape's rolling, you can hear us chatting as she yeah. comes in and sits down. And then the conversation is just continued. It's not a start point or a finish point. Um, uh, that was one of the, the best days I can remember as a professional because the pressure was huge. We needed to get at least an hour's material. And we didn't know how much time we would have because there was a film, a television crew next door waiting. And we went through the interview and there was a magic moment. Um, and she was, she was excellent. You, what, to get the best from someone like Julie Andrews, push her outside her comfort zone. So talk about musicals that she hasn't been in. Well, I asked her about favourite musicals and why. Um, and I could see she was slightly thrown, but she, she enjoyed it then because she knew she wasn't doing her stock interview. Yeah, she wasn't say, answering the same old questions same that she'd old, already exactly. had. And that's where you have to be a bit more intelligent. And I think, I think you're right. I think an interview has to be a conversation. I think just with black and white answers, questions, answers, questions, you know, it just gets a bit dull and no one feels challenged. It's funny, it's, um, there have been people in, in my time, we all have our detractors, and there have been people who, um, uh, some real eccentrics who have written or, into, or commented on social media in the past, um, who were irritated by that. Um, why doesn't Sekhazen ask a question? Why is he, you know, uh, for that reason, because I think a good interview is a conversation. Um, and one thing should lead to another. And if you've planned it well enough, um, don't, be, don't be held to that plan. Don't be religious about that plan. But you, you need to be prepared to digress. But nonetheless... It's interesting, you know, when you say that, because this reminds me of, of being on a casting panel. This is a very strange comparison. But, I, you, you know, you see, you see people coming in to do an audition, and they're expecting something. They have an expectation to come in and deliver their audition piece. Now, when the, when, the, when the people on the panel say, we don't want that, what else have you got? Or can you do that? Or could you do a little bit of that? And they're thrown totally, and it all goes to pot. Mm. And I think it's very much a case of knowing that you need to be flexible. You need to be able to, like a conversation, you need to you know, have a format, have a, have a, you know, a, a rough guide to what you're going to do, mm. but be able yes. to be flexible. And that only comes with experience. And... and um, there was a point three quarters of the way through this Julie Andrews interview where the man from Crystal Champagne um, put a note in front of her while in the middle of the interview. And she, sitting opposite me, opened the note up while trying to continue the conversation. And she just turned round and she mouthed to him, no. <laughs> and of course now I'm thinking, what was in the note? And... Apparently what was in the note I learned afterwards was don't feel you have to talk about crystal champagne. <laughs> she thought it said, please talk about crystal, crystal champagne. And she said, no, <laughs> I'm doing an interview about musical theatre oh, here. Um, so, um, and, and in the end, she gave us more than our value because A, she was having a good time. B, I made it my business to end the interview. I didn't wait for her to say, we've got to stop now. I, I rounded it up when I knew we were on, on the hour. Um, and, um, and, and that's how it happened. Not, all of, not everybody's as generous. Most people are. And I think the key to being a, a good interviewer or, is a, or a special interviewer is, is always how comfortable you make that other person feel mm. um, and how sure they are that you actually admire what they do and you like the work. And thereby hangs an issue with being a, a journalist and a critic. And it's something that rose its, uh, reared its head a long while ago, even when I was only mainly reviewing classical um, events. There, there came a time when I had to stop reviewing certain people. Um, not because um, there was any seemingly direct conflict of interest but you know the the rules of journalism in the old days were that if you wrote a feature for a newspaper you didn't write reviews of that artist 
there were two distinct areas. Um, because features inevitably, to some extent, are puff pieces. Um, and so you have to keep the two separate. And I got into deep water once with a, a very well-known conductor who I'd become quite chummy with. Um, and he hugely respected what I wrote and what I did. And we, we were doing both. We were doing podcasts as well as... And I, I went to review an opening at Glyndebourne and... It wasn't a bad review. It was qualified. And there were certain things I mentioned in it which he felt I had gleaned from my conversations with him in a different situation, where more informal conversations with him. And he took exception to it. And it, it all got cleared up eventually. But at that point, I thought, no, this has got to, to stop. It's a conflict of interest. And What's been happening really in my life, not just with classical music, but uh, I continue to write classical reviews because there isn't much conflict of interest there now because I, I so rarely do. I do public interviews with musicians, but it doesn't conflict as much as it does in, in the theatre and in the musical theatre, particularly because you become close to people and you, um, you, you know them too well. And it doesn't matter how many times they say to you, please... You must say what you feel. I accept it's your judgment. You have a job to do. I've heard it all before. Yeah, until you, until they write until something. Until you, but absolutely. <laughs> and and I'm afraid it's it's why um, people aren't seeing me write reviews as much. Um, <clears throat> and I get asked to to write a lot for sites like the Arts Desk. Um, and. Uh, and most of the time I'm saying, well, no, I can't do that or I can't do this. Occasionally there's something where I don't know anybody and I think, well, OK, I'll, I'll do that. I did it with Dreamgirls. Trouble recently. is you're running out of people because you've either interviewed them or written about them. I know, I know. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a change of, of scenery. And I, um, so apart from the live work, Russell, I mean, um, one of the other um, uh, areas that I've, I've started to focus on more again is radio. And I'm trying to get some things off the ground at Radio 3. Um, um, I, I do record review often. I'm, I'm on this Saturday live doing a comparative review of Charles Ives' wow. Second Symphony. Wow. Um, and, um, and they have a show called Saturday Classics where they invite a guest in. And so I'm going in to do Saturday Classics um, in, in April, which is two hours of airtime. Um, entirely your own pick and I'm going to devote it all to music for the stage in some shape or form from ballet to songs and including things that are personal to me like the Bernstein show like the the show I do with Patricia Routledge um, which came out of stage and screen but we now do and have done all over the country um, and it's basically bless her it's something that is close to her heart her days in musical theatre that nobody knows about or knows less about. Um, so all the things that are personal are getting included. Um, and I'd like to do more of that. But um, who knows? It's very exciting. You have to keep, as you do, reinventing yourself. You have to keep thinking, well, I mustn't let this get stale. I mustn't be in this rut. Um, uh, where do we go next? What do we do next? Um, and... Um, I never say never with anything, but I'm very, very much more aware of how journalism has changed and yeah. how print journalism is dying, quite dramatically so, um, um, particularly with serious art forms like um, theatre and, and classical music, classical music particularly, because um, it's not... I keep using the word sexy. It's very sexy, but people in the media don't think it is unless it's a story about a, uh, a violinist in, in a wet t-shirt um, or <laughs> whatever it is or, or uh, someone who's hit the headlines. It needs to be controversial. I mean you, you've worked with, we've, we've spoken about, you've worked with, with international musicians, conductors, artists. Have you ever worked in America? Have you ever worked on Broadway? Have you ever reviewed in America? Um, uh, I've reviewed Broadway shows, yes. When I was, um, around the time I was doing stage and screen, I, when I was still writing for The Independent, of course, 
one in those days one would get offered tickets nowadays they're, they're a little bit fussier about offering tickets that aren't on the press night um, but I did quite a bit of reviewing then um, I with stage and screen we recorded in New York a few times um, uh, one story to tell um, about Liza Minnelli um, who I have to say is the only person I've ever interviewed um, that I really didn't take to. Why? Um, well, first of all, we were going to do a Christmas special with her and mainly to talk about Candor and Ed because Fred Ebb had just died. And um, Bill, my producer, said, we'll, we'll go to New York and do this. And I said, great. So it was all fixed. We arrive in New York. Um, Liza Minnelli's decided to go to Paris. <laughs> even though she knew she was doing this recording. Um, she went to Paris to see a production of Cabaret. Um, my producer hit the roof because he'd taken over not just me, but his PA, um, and it had cost the BBC a fortune. So I had to... Uh, he said, well, what are we doing? Her PA said, well, um, look, if you can stay till Sunday, we were going back Saturday. Um, I guarantee I'll get her into the studio. Uh, well, um, can you imagine how much more that cost to change all those flights? Uh, the hotel I was staying in was full. They had to put me in the Marriott, which was very expensive for one night. Um, anyway, she turned up at the studio and couldn't have been less helpful. <laughs> and I did the interview very graciously. She didn't acknowledge the research I'd done at all, because usually people... They don't say it, but they know that you, you've put some thought into this and therefore they reciprocate. It's a little bit rude not to have done some homework. I mean, you, you know, yes. I mean you're, you're incredibly, uh, an incredibly intelligent journalist and you're not going to be receptive yourself to an artist or an interviewer, it does either way, that hasn't, doesn't really know what they're talking about. You're mm. going to think, what, what, you know, what, what's going on Exactly, here? exactly. You, you would expect, expect an artist of, of, of that calibre to recognise that. Um, and she'd anyway made up her mind that she was not going to talk about anything but Candra and Ebb, which is fine, it's a big chunk of what she did. Um, but she did it very ungraciously in that she was quite dismissive about any other uh, digressions that I wanted to go on. Um, of course, particularly about her mother, which is, <laughs> in contrast to Lorna Luft, who'll talk about her mother all day, there's, that's not the case with Liza. Um, anyway, we got to the end of the interview, which was I knew was adequate, but I didn't feel the love. <laughs> and um, she said, oh, she said, I don't, I don't really think I've done Freddie justice, you know. I don't, I, I don't know. I felt like saying, well, too right you haven't. Um, you know, what, what, what's with this attitude? And I just said to her, I said, well, the machines are rolling, Liza. I said, now's your chance. <laughs> and she talked for another five minutes about Fred Ebb um, because she felt guilty. She'd been very uncooperative. And that material was vital to the, to the interview. Yeah. I mean, Bill used that five minutes of material mm. through the, the interview. And it came out okay. Um, um, but the funniest part was that at the very end of it, well, me thinking I really stayed around for another day at this expense for this, but anyway, we got it on, we got the interview. Um, and I'd had a DVD there of, of Liza with a Z, which a dear friend of mine had given me and said, if you can possibly ask her for an autograph. And of course, the last thing I wanted to do was that. But I turned around to her and I said, I, I wonder if you'd mind signing this for me. Of course, honey, she said. And suddenly she was Liza Minnelli on display. Isn't that extraordinary? Now you've gone from this, this shy little boy standing on the Royal Festival Hall stage. <laughs> now you're in New York interviewing one of the biggest legends in the world, Liza Minnelli. That's quite something. What has inspired you to get from there to there and to keep going, what what inspires you to do this? What do you what's what? Why are you so passionate about it? Why do you love it so much? Um, is well, it meeting these uh, great people? What no, is it? it's it's just the love of the art, really. Um, um, the love of music, um, in all its guises, 
which is why my ultimate hero is Leonard Bernstein, um, because that's exactly what he was. Um, the love of it in all its guises and, um, uh, and being able to go from one thing to another, which, as you say, people love to categorise, they love to pigeonhole you. Being able to be um, as well known for my passion for musical theatre as I am for the symphonic repertoire or chamber music, whatever it is, or opera. Um, and theatre as well. Um, having been an actor for that time, I felt when I started writing opera reviews that, that I could bring something else because I know what it's like to be out there. I know what it's like to be on that stage and vulnerable. And I've had some crap reviews as an actor. Um, so, you know, we've all been there and it hurts. It really does. You, if it, it becomes personal very quickly, it's very, very hard to be, to write a bad review of someone and it not be personal. Mm. Um, I, I learned that much, but it is the passion that drives in the end of the day. And nothing gives me greater pleasure than to, 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 to see talent in all its many guises. And to still get, I think the, the best thing of all is never to feel jaded about it. And when I go to a great concert, and I went to one a few weeks ago, um, and the magic descended very quickly, and I suddenly thought, wow. And, and, and I get that kind of tingling and loss of sensation in your hands when your, your pulse rate shoots up, and um, that still happens. Yeah. Me too, and I, I, I think you're right. I think passion is what drives. It's it's that feeling that you never want to give up. There's no there's no it never crosses your mind to give up. You mm. just keep going because you love what you do so much, and nothing will get in the way of that. So I mean, and you and you're very fortunate that that it's all happened very organically. It just grew, um, and for some it doesn't always work that way. People have to find their they're pigeonholes, if you like. They have to find what they do best and get on and do those. They don't have this versatility and they don't have this organic drive to, that, that takes you from one step to the, to the next. Well, put it this way. I mean, you can only, you can only go down that route um, if you're not set on earning lots of money. Um, uh, uh, you know, the money comes and goes. And if you're set on earning lots of money, I know some very, very good journalists who've ended up being attached to a newspaper as general arts editor come factotum and they get their, the paper gets its pound of flesh, they pay them a salary. And that's the kind of thing I would have hated to do. Yeah. Um, because uh, anything that compromises... I mean, there's a, there's a well-known journalist, I won't name, um, who uh, is attached to a major newspaper and um, he, he started around the same time I did. And um, he's had a family and, you know, he has to, to work and pay the bills like we all do. And um, he wrote a piece recently about La La Land. And it was a real demolition job. And, um, and I knew, because I know him, that he'd been kind of told to write that piece. You know, he probably said to the editor, oh, I thought it was a bit overrated or whatever. And the editor said, oh... Go for it. And it just smacked of that kind of journal. And that's what I've always tried to avoid as a journalist. Um, and it, it didn't always win me friends in the industry. I mean, many editors... Um, I remember a, an arts editor once saying to me, um, when I didn't want to write an overnight review, which were commonplace then, of um, Tosca at Covent Garden with Domingo, and the show came down at 10.40 and they wanted the finished copy at 11. <laughs> and so... You mean you hadn't written it in the interval? It, well, exactly. And he said, I said, well, I can't write a review in, in that time. It's ridiculous. And he said, well, you write in the interval. And I said, I said but, but you can't get a rounded picture of what someone's doing. What about Act 3? Yeah. What about Act 3? And you know what he said to me? He said, you're no use as an opera critic to me if you can't file an overnight review. 
And I thought, what an arsehole. He ended up in New Zealand for a, writing for a paper there, as befits his and station. And that just, just goes to show that, you know, they expect judgments to be made so quick. When, and when and that's... Can turn yes, around. and what, what use is that to the artist? Not to have that considered view yeah. and to sleep on something. That's yeah. the other thing. What about the climax during during up to the <laughs> end of the, of the opera? I, I, indeed. And, and also because I've always thought, and this is important, I've always thought that criticism is not about whether or not Edward Seckerson likes something. It's about how good a read he provides for yeah. people because it's about sharing the experience. It's irrelevant whether I think something's good, bad or indifferent, actually, mm. um, because it's subjective anyway. What's important is that I write an entertaining piece and that's why I knew I can't write an entertaining piece in half an hour or 20 minutes. Yeah. It takes a lot longer um, and I need to think about it. And just, just finally, what, what, what now? What's, what are the ambitions now? Because you've done so much and achieved so much and had this incredible career and are obviously one of the most respected journalists around. What, what next for Edward Well, I just, I just want to, to, to keep doing what I do and um, I get a hell of a kick out of doing uh, the Bernstein show with Jason and Sophie Louise. Um, we're doing it at the Barbican as part of their Bernstein celebrations in January next year. And I hope we'll get a few other gigs along the way. We're doing it at Salisbury at the festival. Um, so I get a kick out of those kind of shows. I do get a kick out of radio. There's no guarantee that the work comes. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. But you still have to work hard at chasing the work. Um, it's, it, 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 that never changes. Um, the only difference is that people now know who I am as opposed to the beginning when I was trying to sell an unknown quantity. Um, and um, I'm far happier being me now than being me at the beginning of my journalistic career. Um, but I, I'm, I'm game for anything. I'm, I, I, I love the live experience because the actor in me comes out, so I love doing live work. And, and the series Singular Sensations may have a, an afterlife beyond Charing Cross, I don't know. Um, quite likely um, and um, there will be other live shows I do a lot of interviews at colleges um, the Welsh Royal Welsh Drama School Royal Northern College I've done some public interviews there so um, just hit me with things <laughs> well Edward Seckerson thank you very much well, that's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Don't forget to check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast and please continue to spread the word. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget, be your very best. <laughs> <laughs>